There are thousands of weird and wonderful sights you can experience around the world, from visiting glowworm caves in New Zealand. You get asked to look up to the ceiling, and you see what looks like a whole galaxy up there. To crossing a canyon on a hand-woven bridge in Peru. Imagine a kind of suspension bridge, think sort of Indiana Jones style, about 50 feet across, hanging over a, a rushing river. And it is woven entirely by hand out of grass. Coming up, the folks from Atlas Obscura recommend some of their favorites. Get a taste of the longing that finds its voice in the music of Portugal. And although you know it's never going to come back, you don't let go. You keep loving that which you have lost. And that is saudade. And learn how to catch the sky in the Hebrides Islands of Scotland. And the stars fall from the heaven and are reflected in the sea. And if you put your hands through the water, you're actually holding the stars. There's magic in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Sometimes the best cure for the blues is a sad song. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, friends from Lisbon reveal what makes the melancholic music of Portugal so beautiful. And a guide from the Outer Hebrides tells us how living 30 miles off the mainland preserves a special way of life. We're at 877-333-RICK and radio at ricksteves.com. Most of the world's weirder wonders never make it into the guidebooks. The folks at Atlas Obscura are here to tell us about some of the strangest things they've found and that they profile in their best-selling guide to global curiosities. Dylan Thuris and Ella Morton, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having us. What a fun book to page through, Atlas Obscura. Dylan, can you just briefly describe the book and its goal and, and how it's created? Yeah, so originally it started with, with a website where we were people could submit the kind of incredible hidden wonders that they knew about. And the book was meant to distill that down and to make it so that you could basically flip open to any page. And we have about 700 different places in this book. It covers all seven continents. And see something that surprised you, gave you a sense of wonder. And part of the idea is that in kind of looking at these places that maybe are more on the fringe or unusual you get a more expansive sense of what's possible in the world. It, it kind of broadens your appreciation for what even might be out there. You know, that's a very good point. I've enjoyed, you know, reading through the book, and it never occurred to me, for instance, micronations. These are these places that are established for a bunch of different reasons. It may be as an art project or in an act of political dissidence. And it's basically one person declares that a small patch of land is now being governed by them. They consider it to be out of the jurisdiction of the country in which it exists. And there's actually one in Vienna in an amusement park that is a an orange sphere. It's called Kugelmugel. And it's right beside a Ferris wheel, and it just has this sign on it that basically says, look, this is my country, it's very tiny, you're not allowed in. And there are, there are these micronations all around the world. Some of them are on islands, some of them are just little patches of a country, but people get really creative with it. They offer their own passports, they'll stamp a, a visa for you, they make their own currency. It's pretty fascinating. Another thing that's fascinating is just unforgettable edibles and drinkables. When you think of all the different entries that you sorted through to get your select list that actually went into the book, Atlas Obscura, what are some of the most memorable things to eat or drink? Oh, I have one. It's in Canada. It's in the Yukon. In Dawson City, there is a bar that serves, it's called the Downtown Hotel, and it serves a drink called the Sour Toe Cocktail. 
And it basically began when this adventurer named Captain Dick was sorting through a cabin on the outskirts of the city and found a pickled human toe and thought, what can I do with this? And then decided, well, I think it would make a great cocktail garnish. So ever since then, it's been a tradition that this human toe gets plopped into a drink at the downtown hotel. And it's a sort of challenge that if you lift the drink to your lips and you you drink the liquid, but you let the toe touch your lips, then that means that you have consumed the sour toe cocktail. You've taken the challenge and survived. So there's a single toe and it's yes. just recycled from drink to drink. One of the funniest things about the Sour Toe Cocktail is they are actually on toe number 10. They have completed a set of toes in, in, in so far as that the toe has been stolen or lost or at least on a couple of occasions swallowed. No. And at least one occasion. Yes, I know. So oh, no. they have this kind of open call for people to donate toes. And astonishingly, they have been kept in a pretty steady supply for the last 30 plus years. Wow. We're exploring some of the world's oddest curiosities right now on Travel with Rick Steves with Dylan Thuris. He's the co-founder of the Atlas Obscura website. And Ella Morton is the chief editor of their best-selling book, which distills the best of what they feature at atlasobscura.com. When you think about obscure places, a lot of times it has to do with human bones, mummies and that sort of thing. What are some that come to mind? Maybe one of the most astonishing examples of this is in Japan, in northern Japan, They're called the self-mummified monks. And this was a practice uh, that actually went on for a few hundred years by a a particular sect of Buddhists in which monks in an act of ultimate sacrifice would self-mummify. And what this meant was undergoing essentially a a nine-year process. So the first three years would be spent eating a diet of basically bark and and nuts. You limited your diet enormously and stripped the fat off your body. And then the next three years, you would add this kind of broth to your diet. And what it was, was essentially, it was the sap of the arushi tree, and it was wood lacquer, for lack of a better term. That's really what it was. And the idea was that it would slowly kind of lacquer these monks' bodies. And then basically, this was, you know, sort of led to the final stages where they would put themselves into a sealed room and they would ring the bell once a day. And when they stopped ringing the bell, that entered the last stage of self-mummification where they'd be left in this room for three years. And finally, the tomb would be opened. And if they'd been successful, they would have literally turned themselves into a mummified relic. And it was this that kind is of... horrible. Well... <laughs> Eventually, it was it was outlawed by the Japanese government in the 1850s. They were like, okay, that's, that's, that's enough. Too much. Um, but it was the ultimate act of self-denial and self-sacrifice. Yeah. Okay. And when they were successful, they were venerated. And you can still, there's about 16 of them wow. on display in northern Japan that people still go and, and venerate. You had a fascinating chart in your book with these giant Buddhas, all of them bigger than the Statue of Liberty. Much, much bigger. <laughs> uh, well, tell me about those. You know, throughout Asia, and I think the largest one is like five times as tall as the Statue of Liberty. I mean, and they're car- some of them are literally just carved. I mean, they're, they're basically mountains in which the Buddha's image right. has kind of been carved out of it. They're truly astonishing. A fun dimension of your book is just the odd museums. All over the planet, there are museums devoted to bordellos, to the CIA, to frogs, to neon signs, to to voodoo. What are some of your favorite odd museums, Ella? 
The one that's sort of close to home, it's in Kentucky. It's called Vent Haven, and it's a ventriloquist museum. has a bunch of different ventriloquist dummies, and there's a room in mm. which they are all lined up just sitting there. Mm. It's, it's quite a sight to see. But this is also the center of a yearly convention for ventriloquists. But it's just an example of one of the many subcultures for which you might not think about there being a museum but these things exist all around the world that people might take just one person to be a collector and then to establish somewhere that becomes a hub for that small scene. They probably are driven by one person's passion for something quirky. I mean, there's a, a thimble museum outside of Rotenburg, uh, which is just filled with historic thimbles. And I, I find those museums, especially if you get the chance to talk to that person, are some of the most wonderful. And Sometimes you go in thinking, well, this sounds like it couldn't possibly be more boring, you know. But then inside of this museum is some object that is totally amazing. In Devon, England, at the World Barometer Exhibition, which, mm. you know, I don't think people are rushing to go see, but they, they should be. Because in there is something called the Tempest Prognosticator. And it is a giant glass bell jar. And in it, you'll see a little carousel with 12 little kind of leashes attached to bells. And what this was, was that in the Victorian era, it was really hard to predict the weather. So a guy named George Merriweather, he had a good, you know, one of those names that mm -hmm. fits his profession, <laughs> decided, I have a solution to this. And what it was is he'd noticed that freshwater leeches, when a storm is coming in, get a little bit agitated and start to wiggle around. So he made this contraption where he would put tiny leashes on the leeches, and those were attached to these bells. And when a storm was coming in, they would start ringing. And, and of course, this, you know, you'll be surprised to hear, shocked to hear that this did not uh, catch on. But they have a working model of this mm. at the Barometer Exhibition in Devon, England. And so, you know, it's, That's great. it's a good example of, of something that will surprise you at one of these museums. Laura has emailed us from North Richland Hills in Texas. And, and Laura writes, there's a unique folk art museum in Houston called The Orange Show, built over 20 years by a postal worker who died just seven months after it was finished. It's a strange, eclectic, and wonderful place. Now a Gaudi-style mosaic park is in the process of being finished by the local artists. Had you heard of that? Yeah. It is not in the book, but it is in the site. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Orange It's show. on the website at atlasobscura.com. Yes, right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dylan Thuros and Ella Morton about Atlas Obscura. Their website is atlasobscura.com. Of all the places that you've put into your book, Atlas Obscura, I'd like each of you just to share one that just comes to mind as a place really impactful that is wide open to visiting and that you would recommend people put on their wish list for future travels. Uh, Ella, start with you. One that I went to as a child and that made a, a very strong impression on me just because it was so magical was the Waitomo glowworm caves in New Zealand. It's just a most amazing experience because you go into these dark caves and you get into a little boat and get rowed along a subterranean river where it's really, really dark. And you get asked to look up to the ceiling and you see what looks like a whole galaxy up there. And each of the twinkling lights is a fluorescent fungus gnat that's in its larval stage. So it's just one of those experiences where if you look at a photo of it, it looks like a galaxy, but when you're oh. actually there, yeah, you can't quite believe what you're looking at. All right. And Dylan, what's your favorite? So I got a chance to go to a place in Peru about four hours outside of Cusco. It is called Quechua Chaca, sometimes referred to as the last Incan bridge. 
imagine a kind of suspension bridge, think sort of Indiana Jones style, big suspension bridge, about 50 feet across, hanging over a, a rushing river. And it is woven entirely by hand out of grass. It is made from this local kind of hay that grows. And each year, the four villages near there come together and work for about a week to weave this grass into twine and weave that twine into larger ropes until they've created this incredibly strong suspension bridge. And they do this each year again and again because basically over a year's time, it's sort of the weather elements wear it out. And at that point, they either cut it down or light it on fire and then they make another one. And part of what made this so amazing to me is is not just sort of that aspect and it's the fact that it's this engineering marvel, but effectively this has been made in this exact same way for over 500 years and is a, a kind of remaining piece of the great Incan road empire, part of this enormous infrastructure that once ran over much of South America. And so hmm. to go there to meet the bridge master, this guy named Victoriano, to talk to him about how he made the bridge, how his father taught him, his father before him had been the bridge master and so on. And it just had this, this incredible kind of unbroken cultural hmm. history. Going all the way back to pre-Columbian times. All right. Dylan Thuris and Ella Morton, thanks so much for joining us and best wishes with your work at Atlas Obscura. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rick. When you gotta glow, you gotta glow. Glow, little glow, I'm glow. Dylan describes a curious way to season your eggs in China in an extra to this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. A local's guide to the far-flung Hebrides Islands of Scotland is next on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll get in tune with how the Portuguese express their emotions in music with a haunting sense of longing and melancholy. Find out how that can actually make you feel good a little later in the hour today on Travel with Rick Steves. I first learned of James McClutchy's love for his home in the woolly Hebrides Islands of Scotland in an email he wrote me. He wrote that he felt his life began at age six when he was adopted out of a Glasgow orphanage. His foster parents took him to live on one of the Outer Hebrides, where a kid could explore all day and where he soon learned to speak Scots Gaelic, like everyone else. James, it's good to have you with us. You're welcome, Rick. So tell us your story. How is it that you ended up growing up on this remote fringe of, of the British Isles that's actually closer to Iceland than it is to London? It's a really bizarre story. I was somewhere sitting in the darkness. I had no memories of living at all. And one day a door opened and this tall man came in dressed in a suit and he took me out into a room and he put on a table, a big map, and he pointed to the map and he said, you're going there. He said, you're going to see your new mum and dad. So wait a minute, you were an orphan? I was an orphan in some home somewhere. There was, you don't I, even know where? No memories. It was somewhere in Glasgow, but there was no memories, nothing. And this was my first day of something so significant in my life. And I still remember this man pointing to this very small dot and you're going there. And I don't even remember going there. But the first thing I remember was getting there oh. and coming out into this incredible place with big skies, amazing color of sea. And there was this little boy in his brown shorts and his jacket with a teddy bear. And he got put into a car with big red seats and it trundled down this road in what can only be described as one of the most beautiful moments in your life. It was the first moment that I believe I was born because this was given to me. Whoa. Yeah, the child went into the light. Why? What is it about the Hebrides? 
The Hebrides are just those remote islands where not many people live, way on the on the fringe, on the northwest of the British Isles. Well, the Hebrides are divided into two sections. So we've got the Inner Hebrides and the Outer Hebrides. So the Inner Hebrides, for example, will have Skye, Tyree, Rumjura, Kana, Ione, and all those places. And then the Outer Hebrides, where I live, we've got 11 occupied islands. Uh, we're about 30 miles from the nearest mainland of Scotland. 500 miles from Iceland. But this is one of the oldest archipelagos in the whole of Britain. We've got rocks there that are 3,500 million years old. It goes right the way across the ocean over towards Labrador. And the people who live there still speak the native Gaelic language. And they still live and work in a way of lifestyle that is so rare and unique to see in Scotland today. Now, you wrote about how you fell in love with its beaches, nature and culture. Talk about the beaches. The beaches are powder white beaches. We've got one of the top 10 beaches in Europe in the Isle of Harris. Uh, but where I live in Uist, we've got 35 beautiful beaches that are so accessible to people. These beaches in the summertime are fringed with what's known as the Macherland, which is this unique habitat that grows next to the sea. And there's over 177 different wildflower types growing there. So it's a carpet of incredible flowers and fragrance coming through the air. How are the seasons different for a traveller when they go to the Outer Hebrides? It's as if we go from spring to summer to autumn all in one. It's like a combined. So when you come there, you have to expect seven seasons in one day. It's always a breeze blowing. It's fairly warm in the summer. It'll get up to maybe about 70 at the best. Mm -hmm. In the wintertime, we don't get snow, but we don't get darkness in the summertime. So we've got 18 hours of daylight. And the, the fun for visitors is, how do we sleep in that? And what do local people do? So when the summer comes, we work until it gets dark. So we take advantage of the light. Con- conversely, in the winter, it probably is dark much of the day. Yeah, it gets dark around about uh, 3.30 to 4.30. After the shortest day, we get 15 minutes a week and we start to see the birds. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with James McCletchy and he is, uh, he's a Hebrides man. What do you call a person who lives in the Hebrides? A Hebridean. A Hebridean. And when you think about the Hebridean, the population is quite sparse. How many people live in the outer Hebrides? We've got about 26,500 people. 26,000, that's like a tiny suburb of Edinburgh. Are these mostly people that live there because they had no choice, they were born there, or they're brought there as an orphan like you? Or are they people that are getting away from the crazy world and wanting to have a place where they can be closer to nature and have a quieter life? It's a really interesting combination. When I went there, it was dominantly islanders who were born there, who lived there for generations. And gradually through time, those people have left. And we're now getting a larger influx of people moving from central belt of England and those places looking for that ideal life, looking for that tranquility to get away from. You wrote that uh, you were taught by an older generation who showed you the world of an island. Does that older generation still exist? Some of them are still there. And what's really unique to me is... I remember the first time I was ever held in Emily's arms was when I arrived at that home in the Hebrides and this woman came out and she lifted me in her arms as if I was her own. And what was wonderful about that time growing up in the Hebrides was the older people had time for children. All they wanted you to be was to be the best you could ever be. And they never asked you for anything. They just gave you everything. They taught you a wonderful, wonderful way of life. Your foster dad was a crofter and a seaweed factory worker. Yeah, he had... What's, what's a crofter? A crofter is somebody who owns a small piece of land. The average uh, at one time would have been five acres. He had two cows when I was growing up, 30 sheep, some chickens. And to supplement that, he used to go and work in a seaweed factory, the alginate factory. So they would dry the seaweed, they would send it away and export it. Pretty bleak land to be more than subsistence, I would think. It is bleak land, but when you look at native people, they find a way to live in a, a paradise. Paradise always has a challenge. And that challenge is how to work and manage the land. There's been people on these islands for over 8,000 years. 
and they've left a testimony everywhere they've been. Now in Ireland, uh, there's stories of people that labored long and hard to turn seaweed into good fertile soil. Was that done in the Hebrides also? Yeah, because it, these rocky islands, you need soil. Yeah, there are certain segments of the islands, and particularly in the Isle of Harris and those areas where you can look at the landscape and you can see these lines that are through there, which are known as Fianakan. And the ladies at one time would have carried the seaweed off the shore in a wicker basket. They'd have carried it up. They'd have laid it all along the ground and then they'd have turned the soil over. And it's really fascinating to look at how those people managed to live and survive there with a, a larger population than we have today, 44,000 people during that time. How big is tourism? for? I mean, I, I see this idyllic sort of world apart. On the other hand, you can get there quite conveniently from Edinburgh, and uh, there must be a fair amount of impact of tourism. Access is very easy to the islands. We have flights from Glasgow and from Edinburgh to go there, but we also have ferry services run by Caledonia McBrain. We have 275,000 visitors a year coming to those islands. But what's wonderful about those islands is there is a limiting capacity on the amount of people that can actually come at one given time. And we have such an environment that they disperse into this environment. So you might see them around once or twice a week. And the next time you see them is when they're leaving. Ah. The impact has not been that big on the environment. It's allowed us, yes, to invest in holiday homes, bed and breakfast and things like that. But people can still experience the real Hebrides. So there's the inner Hebrides, which are closer to the world. And we've got some famous tourist attractions, the uh, island of Iona and uh, Mole, which you go across from Oban to get to Iona. Yes. Iona is a very spiritual place where Christianity came to Scotland yes. and has this connection with the old Irish saints and so on. And then the Isle of Skye, which is every traveler's favorite romantic, magical bit of the Scottish island culture. But then you go beyond that to the outer Hebrides. As travelers, how would we distinguish now between the outer and the inner? And are the outer Hebrides worth the extra oomph it takes to get there? Well, the inner Hebrides to us are the gateway to the outer Hebrides. Right. You can go and experience the lifestyle on Iona and Mull and all those areas. Coming through Skye is a really beautiful experience as well because you've got the Cullen Hills, you've got the Red Cullens, you've got the Fairy Flags, you've got Denvegan Castle, you've got a beautiful, beautiful, diverse landscape. But when you take that step beyond, you're moving into what the Celtic people used to call the Gates of Fire, the Old World. You meet people who speak a different language. You meet people who have a friendly welcome to you. And I could guarantee that you could turn up on Emily's door in the Hebrides and they would take you in and give you a cup of tea. And that has not changed since I was a child. There's a mystique about the Caledonian McBray ferry system. It's these ocean-going ferries that are the lifeline for a lot of these islands. And they chug out of these little ports and into the open sea and you know they're going to another island and they are bringing, bringing sustenance, bringing loved ones and bringing food and trade. What does the Caledonian McBray ferry line mean to the people of the Hebrides? It's more than just a lifeline. It's actually the way we live, because without Caledonian McBrain, we would not be there. Right. They bring in our food, and when the ferries can't run, we don't get any food. But not only that, the people who work on those boats are actually island-based as well, so we know them. They're giving you a true island experience when you go on there, a true island welcome. You hear bilingual language when you come onto the ferry, spoken in both languages, and it's really wonderful. And Caledonian McBrain go to about 23, 25 different islands, and they're one of the most reliable companies you could ever see. Is Oban the, the sort of the gateway to the Hebrides from a, a transportation point of view? Yeah, Oban is fairly easy for people from Glasgow. It's about two hours by transport right. or three hours by train, which is one of the most beautiful journeys you can take. But then by going to Oban, it opens up the inner Hebrides to you as well as the outer Hebrides. So what you would do is, coming to me, you would come into the far end, the southern end, and then what people normally do is they drive through to the north. So we have a saying where I come from. You head up south and down north. Up south is meant to be closer to heaven. 
up south. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. And I'd like to welcome you aboard the Bell of Mulls for sailing to Hobbit. James McCutchie is giving us an insider's view of his home turf on the Hebrides Islands off the northwest coast of Scotland. James has photos of the natural beauty of the Hebrides on his tour-guiding website, unwindinnature.com. Robert's listening in from Winchester, Virginia, and joins us on the line at 877-333-7425. Hi, Robert. Yes, thank you for having me. James, um, you know, it's such a vast area. I was curious as to... If you wanted to stay there and tour for the week, where would you suggest staying as far as centralizing? One of the things people have to understand about the Hebrides is they are a 130-mile long chain. So depending on what your interests are, if it was archaeology, if it was environment, we recommend that you could maybe fly into the Isle of Lewis, into Stornoway. That would then give you access to the biggest island. You could go and see the standing stones, thatched houses. You could go and experience beautiful beaches, the Harris Tweed industry. If you then came into the Southern Isles, where I live, um, you've again got access to the beaches. You've got access to fishing, trips to St. Kilda, one of the most beautiful world uh, heritage sites in the whole world out there just off our island, 41 miles. Or you can come by ferry. You can come down to Oban, take a train from Glasgow for about three hours, and then take a ferry out towards the islands. That'll take you about five and a half to six hours. Um, You can hire a car there. It's fairly easy. You can hire a car in the south and drive it up to the north and leave it there. Or there's very good public transport as well on these islands. And it's a real wonderful experience because you're going on the little post buses. You're going on other local transport. You get a real chance to experience flavor and also to meet local people. Oh, wonderful. One of my favorite memories, Robert, in the Hebrides was just getting to know the, the man who drives the post bus across the Isle of Mull, getting from Oban to Iona. And he was like a stand-up comedian, but he was sitting at the driver's seat, and he just knew the culture, knew all the gossip, and he couldn't stop talking. And I just wanted to go back and forth in that bus all day long to listen to this bus driver. You see that guy? He's really up the back end of that car. James, do I understand in Scotland that tourists are welcome to, or anybody's welcome to go on a post car almost to get someplace yeah, if there's no bus that goes there? There is normally a, a local transport system that runs there, but some of the roads are so remote that it's a post bus that goes down there, so it's a postal minibus. They're collecting the mail as you go down from a letterbox. Robert, thanks for your call. Well, thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. James, you, you mentioned to Robert to fly into the island of Harris. Would it be okay with you if I just had five days for the Hebrides that I flew over the famous places and went straight to the outer Hebrides? Yeah, you'd fly into Stornoway or into yeah. Bambekla, but I can give you the most unique flight in Europe. What's that? You fly into the island of Barra and you land on the beach in a twin otter plane. There is nowhere else in Europe where you can do that but you Barra. You land on the beach? Yeah, it's you, not a seaplane. The, it, the beach is just the beach, runway. It's a twin otter and you land there and it's the only place where the landings are separated by the tide and you fly direct from Glasgow huh. and you'll be there with maybe eight people on the plane. What's the name of the island again? This is the Isle of Barra, B-A-R-R-A. Now, you mentioned in the context of Harris Island, Harris Tweed. It's actually originating from the island of Harris. It originated from the Isle of Harris as a cottage industry, and it went through quite a turbulent time. Uh, but recently, there's been a huge innovation in Harris Tweed. We've got lots more designer products coming through. Right. There's a lot more cottage industry coming back into there. And also, Harris Tweed has the authentic orb symbol on it. It's got to be stamped. It's got to be made in Harris and the Outer Hebrides. If you buy it made anywhere else, it is not authentic. By the way, can you do the Hebrides with a rental car just leaping from island to island by local little ferry? Yeah, that is one of the unique things about Caledonia McBrain as well, because they've got what's known as a Hebridean hopscotch. Okay. And you can buy a ticket and you get on a smaller ferry and a 
smaller ferry as you go through the islands. Oh, man. And that's a real experience again because I love it. you're going there with all the local people. You might even go on there, there might be uh, some sheep going over or something yeah. like that on there. And it truly is an incredible experience. And even though I've been doing it since I was a child, every summer I go to the other islands because I want to experience that part of my life. We're learning about the Hebrides with James McCletchy. James's website is unwindinnature.com. Just talking to you, I can imagine that is the right website for you. Unwind in nature with the magic of the Hebrides and the rest of Scotland to boot. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Carolyn's calling in from San Diego. Hey, Carolyn. Hi, Rick. Do you have a comment or a question for James? Well, my great-grandmother was born in Elay in the Hebrides, and my cousin and I are cooking up a trip and wondering, is there any way to inquire into our ancestry while we're there? Yeah, Islay, of course, is what's known as the Whiskey Island there. You can go there and have a wonderful experience uh, on the whiskey. But Islay, recently, there is websites uh, available online where you can actually write to them with uh, your ancestry's name. They can actually trace your relatives who have came from there. And you can go and speak to the genealogy specialists. Uh, okay, what's it? Whiskey and genealogy, what's the name of the island? Islay, I-S-L-A-Y. I-S-L-A-Y. So if you wanted to go to Islay, uh, you could come to maybe make Oban your base and then take a Caledonia McBrain trip out there, spend a couple of days there, uh, go around. You'll probably get a chance to get a local guy to go and see maybe where your relatives came from. There was quite a lot of emigration from our islands dating right the way back from the 1600s right the way through to the 1800s. So a lot of those people came to America. Some went to the South Carolina. They went to Nova Scotia, Vancouver and all those places. So I, please, I went to Canada. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And if you look at the place names in those areas, they're actually relative to a lot of the areas where the people came from So as you can well. go to Nova Scotia yeah. and you as a Scottish guy could see, ah, these people came from the... Yeah, from, from the islands. From the uh, islands. Or, there. Caroline, thanks for your call. Well, thanks. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. James, I could talk forever about the Hebrides. In fact, I'm already rearranging my, my travel dreams. This is so beautiful. You mentioned you learned the Gaelic language. And what's the, the status of the language and... And where would you find it as a traveler? Well, the Gaelic language is probably now there's about 87,000 speakers worldwide uh, who can speak it. The dominant population can speak it out in the Outer Hebrides. Right. They reckon there's about 23% of the people who can speak, read and write it. It is still a bastion for the language. We have a problem with it because of Anglicization when the English language started to come into our house. When the television came into our homes in the 1970s, they said that that was the first time an Englishman came into a Hebridean home. So the English language became the dominant language. But the Gaelic language has been held onto there. So it's what we classify as a working language. It's an old language that goes right the way back to the 4th, 5th century. Mm -hmm. came over from Ireland, mixed in there. And it's unique where we are there because when you look at the old maps of Scotland, we were known as the Norse Gaels uh, because we had a lot of Viking influence there, but we managed to withhold onto the language. So I use the language on a daily basis. It's easier for me to speak in the Gaelic language than it is in English. There's some words I don't know in English. And when you look at the expressions that the older people used to have, they wouldn't have the same meaning right. in the English language. So it's that connection back to those old times. For me as a child, it allowed me to be immersed in island culture. And I would never have had and gained the wealth of knowledge that I had if I wasn't able to speak to those older people. So I'm going to come and visit you and you're going to teach me a little bit of Celtic Scottish language and you're going to take me out after dinner for a little walk. What's a beautiful experience I would have that I would never forget in well, the Hebrides? Well, one of the beautiful experiences we have in the Hebrides is called Catching the Stars and Leaving Only Footprints. We can go down on walking onto the beaches, the powder sand beaches, you can go on barefoot, walking into the water and the stars fall from the heaven and they're reflected in the sea. And if you put your hands through the water, you're actually holding the stars. And for people 
not only going into the sea, but having that experience, which is so unique. And then during the summertime, we have what's known as bioluminescence. The seaweed and the water takes on this incredible glow. And when you actually walk along the seaweed in your feet, your footprints light up. So you could follow my footprints through the seaweed. This is one of the most unique experiences you can have in an environment that is so tranquil. You can just stand there and you hear the sounds of nature and you hear sounds that you wouldn't normally hear. James McGletchy, sign me up. I want to touch the stars and leave only footprints. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. You can find links to our guests with each week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Up next, friends from Portugal tell us how they turned loneliness and longing into a wistfully beautiful type of music. Hear for yourself in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. In Portugal, they have a unique way of turning sadness or a broken heart into music and songs that can make you feel connected to something bigger and stronger than yourself. They call the feeling saudade and have a music tradition they call fado that I think expresses it beautifully. Here to help us understand this core character of Portuguese culture on Travel with Rick Steves are tour guides Rafael Pereira and Cristina Duarte. Cristina, Rafael, welcome. Thank you very much. So, saudade, how would you, Cristina, define how this is a part of the Portuguese soul, saudade? It's a very, very difficult word to translate in just one word. I think that we are the only country in the world that defines all these feelings, deep feelings, in just one word. Saudade, if you really want to translate it, I think that the best translation is the presence of the absence. The pres- presence of the absence. The is presence something, of the absence. What exactly. does that mean? Is that a, is a longing of something that it's constantly with you in your mind, in your soul, in your deep feelings, but physically is not there. So it's aware of something you do not have. Yes. It, you have it on your thoughts. You have it on your heart. You have it on your on your way of looking to things. When we look to the sea, for instance, is something that the Portuguese have very much rooted in our culture, is that we have this kind of a look like a far away. Rafael, why, why Portugal and Saudade? Yeah, let me introduce an idea here that might help our listeners to understand what is this idea of Saudade. You cannot understand Saudade rationally. With ah, yes. That's my problem. I'm trying yes. to be rational. You right cannot now. understand it with your mind. It's something that you understand with your heart. There was a Portuguese king from the 1400s called Don Duarte. He was known as the philosopher, and he wrote, "Saudade is the sense of the heart." So it's the the brain of your heart, almost, or, or the thinking, the feeling of your heart. Again, well, well, I, I, I'm trying I, to be I, too logical, I, aren't I? I, <laughs> I, I would, again, you're, you're coming back to the logical. You're going the brain of the heart. No, it's no, not no, the no, brain of no. the heart. It's just the heart. And I think it's so that it's paradoxical because it is at the same time the longing for a lost past and wanting this lost past to come back, back in the future. But it's never going to come back. And although you know it's never going to come back, you don't let go. You keep loving that which you have lost. And that is so that. That's why the presence of the absence is constantly there. Do you cry? Is it a sadness or is it a kind of a, a love or is it a awareness of your culture and losses of the past? It's all of that. All it can of be that happy. together. It, it can, can be, be I was going to ask. It yeah. can, it's it not can only be sad. Happy. Oh, okay. you, you're longing for something that happened and when you, re, you think about that again, you are living it again. Okay, so now both of you, it's just like 
it is who you are. It's, yes. it's woven into your, your yes. DNA, yes. your blood. Yes. Uh, and yes. for me as a tourist coming to Portugal, I want to connect with this, and I'm, I don't have the heritage, and I don't quite understand how to not make it logical. How would I experience it? Where would I go to find Saudade in my travels? I would say go to a place where you feel comfortable alone and uh, with yourself. Uh-huh. Just a, a, My favorite place will be by the water, uh-huh. nearby the water, where right. my eyes can look along uh, with the line of the horizon without seeing anything, really. It's uh-huh. just with a line, just leave your eyes to go. And your thoughts probably is just being with yourself. Being comfortable yeah. with silence. With silence, yes, yeah. with silence. Let me, let me continue on this idea of Cristina of the ocean, because if you look at the geographic position of Portugal, we are an Atlantic country. We return to the ocean. Mm-hmm. And today, uh, we know a little bit of the mysteries of the Atlantic Ocean, but in the past, it was not like that. The ocean was uh, mysterious. It was the mm-hmm. unknown. Okay, so when you're looking at the horizon, you're in deep relationship with the mystery of life. And that is so that you cannot understand the mystery of life through reason, through yeah. your mind. By yeah. definition, it is unknown. The relationship to the ocean is a key element to understand Portuguese culture. And also we can connect it, of course, with the Portuguese age of exploration. Did the ocean, was it sustenance? Did it bring food and did it pay for life or was it death? Was it uh, happy? Was it sad? Is it the enemy or a friend? It's the paradox again. The ocean is something that gives you a way of life, but can take away from you what you love in one second. So it's the paradox. At the same time, is your second chance in life. Second chance. Again, with our geographic situation, we are pretty there. We are the last country of continental yeah. Europe. And we are the most to the western, stuck between Spain and the ocean. So looking to the ocean is looking to our opportunities in life. So it's the past and the future yes. together. I was talking with a very old man in uh, Salema on the Algarve in the south coast of Portugal, mm-hmm. and I was just asking him about his childhood. And today, you know, there's tourism and mm-hmm. there's bed and breakfast and there's fancy little restaurants. And he said when he was a little boy sitting on the same little town, mm-hmm. a port town with the colorful fishing boats dragged up on the sand, he said for him life was only sardines and the sea. And the sea, yeah, it's it was present. sardines and the sea. The sea is present in our culture. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Portugal and something fundamental to Portugal. It's this nostalgic feeling of saudade. I'm talking with Cristina Duarte and Rafael Pereira, and we're talking with Lisbon guides about how, as travelers, we can connect. We can do more than just see cliches on stage. We can connect with the culture. Now, the logical thought for a traveler to Portugal, Cristina and Rafael, is to connect this feeling of saudade with the wonderful fado music tradition. First of all, what is fado? So fado is our... um is our unique traditional music style that you will only find in Portugal. It, it is part of what is it defines the culture in it's a way. It's embedded in our cultural DNA and expresses Portuguese soul, it expresses Portuguese uniqueness, and in my opinion, it is the most beautiful expression of the feeling saudade. I can be alone in a restaurant, enjoying my sardines and my wine, and I can be looking into the face of the fado singer and to hear that nostalgia and it takes me back 
Yes. It's a sort of a meditative thing. It takes you to Saudad. It takes that, so I, that's I'm, the I'm on the edge of Saudad. Yes, that's the way. Just have another sip of wine, forget the rest of the world, and let this woman's beautiful, beautiful, mournful, yes. sad voice take you into Portugal's past. And you don't even have to understand the language. Mm-hmm. Because here's the secret of Fado, here's the secret of Saudad. The language of the heart is universal. It's so true. When you're speaking from your heart, anyone can understand, regardless of your cultural background, regardless of your language. If we think about Fado, it's basically um, mournful, nostalgic, folk singing, Portuguese. Not no, always. Not, not always not, mournful. Not, not necessarily always sad. So it can be uh, jaunty also. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. When Fado's the chant, the song, it's talking about the deep feelings. On those cases, the classicals, they are always sad. If you are talking about descriptions, narratives of the city and how the colors are, or a bullfighting, a description, a narrative, mm-hmm. they tend to be more cheerful. More cheerful. More and good. after the first bottle of wine, it changes, yes. <laughs> wine is an important factor. In, wine is an important <laughs> Oh, yes. For me... It unmoors you. It sets your boat loose. It lets your emotions come. Yes. You know, when you're very rational and you drink a, a, a glass of wine... That is, that is different. <laughs> Not only the bottle of wine, I normally say that you appreciate father more after your broken heart, your first broken heart. Oh, because yeah. yes. it's when you feel identified with the words that that person is... So there's Fado about a fisherwoman who lost her man at sea, broken love, yes, uh, waiting broke, for a yes. love. Uh, yes. Our guests, Christina Duarte and Rafael Pereira, are tour guides from Lisbon. They're taking us deep into the soul of Portugal today on Travel with Rick Steves as we explore the concept of saudade. Christina, when you, just from a practical point of view, if you want to experience Fado, reality is it's going to be a touristy restaurant where you have a touristy presentation, but I find it can still be a quality experience. What do you recommend to experience Fado in Lisbon? Well, Faro is an experience, not only a, you know, a music experience, is a, a senses, all senses experience. That's why we normally go to a place where we have food and mm-hmm. we have drink. And uh, like that is a dinner that can be quite long. So it's a dinner yeah, concert, but you, dinner you take concert. your time. And, yes, we take our and time. And you can spend so, an hour just with the dessert and then well, the dessert exactly, wine. Exactly. So it's an easygoing thing that it has. It starts mostly of the times 8.30 mm-hmm. uh, and then goes until 1 o'clock. But you are free to leave whenever you want. So the hotels will send you to the fancy touristy Fado mm-hmm. shows, which are a nice dinner and all the razzmatazz on stage. You can go to a neighborhood and find a funky little restaurant where the waitresses and waiters sing and play. It's more casual and you're only paying for the food, really, yes. and you get the free music. There is a Fado tourist concert in yes, Barrio Alto there is, that there I thought is. was quite good, and it's just an hour and it's earlier. Yeah. And yeah. then there's a museum in the Alfama, which yes. is really quality. And yes. when you go to that museum, you realize there are Frank Sinatra's and uh, Billie Holiday's and yes. uh, Bing Crosby's of the Fado industry. Raphael, if you think about Fado as a part of Lisbon's musical culture, are there classics that even a young man like you would uh, remember and appreciate? And are there new stars of today's generation? Oh, yes. Of course, there is the Fado Queen, Amalia Rodrigues. And there are songs that everyone knows, like Lisboa, Menini Moça, which is a Portuguese Fado song that sings about Lisbon. It compares Lisbon with a woman. Ah, who's the, the classic Fado singer? And then what about today's generation? So the classic Fado singer, of course, is uh, the Fado Queen, Amalia Rodrigues. 
But there are some very interesting new Fado artists like uh, Marisa, she's well known, also Ana Mora, I really like. So there's a young generation of Fado singers that give a little bit of a modern twist to Fado. How would they change it to take the classic? I would think it's a little bit dangerous to take something so beloved and make it modern twist. Do they respect the tradition and give it freshness? That is a very good question because we live a little bit in the shade of this melancholy. Melancholy. And some of these new Fado artists, they're trying to break this spell. They're using the same cultural platform, Just but say, giving it a more optimistical okay, perspective so, yeah. to break that spell. Yeah, it used to be very tough, but come on, it's all right now. Let's just uh, move yes, on exactly, and live, embrace life exactly, today. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but you know that when I want to listen to Fado, Fado is not something that I go on YouTube and listen. That doesn't make sense. It's right. something that you have to listen live. And yeah. when I want to listen to it live, I don't go to the restaurants where the best known Fado singers are. No, what I look is for the environment. Yes. Because I have been to the same restaurant and I've had completely different experiences in the same place. Because what makes a difference is the environment. First of all, if the person that is playing is playing with the heart or not, and that you can tell right away. Because one thing is to interpret a song. And something completely different is to find something inside of yourself that relates to what you're singing. And then you sing from that inner place that is genuine, that is personal, that is authentic. So when I go to listen to Fado, and I listen to Fado when I'm sad. And now, mm. why are you going to listen to something that is sad when you're sad? We will get you there. <laughs> the best Fado experience that I've ever had, I walk into the restaurant and I look at the person that is singing. It is this old lady. She's probably almost in her 80s. She's very short. She's dressed in black, of course. She has a white head and she's just with her eyes closed. And I look at her and it's like she's just in front of the Atlantic Ocean waiting for her loved one to come back and she knows he's not going to come back. She just had that pain, that soldat, that emotion. And I look at the people that are also listening because imagine if you're expressing your heart and people that are listening to you are not in the same frequency. The magic is not created. The bond, the mm -hmm. connection is not there. You see, so everyone has to be in the same frequency. And of course, that is why wine is so important. So I go inside in this particular night, I go inside the restaurant and I'm sad. I'm really sad and everyone is really sad and everyone is in that is under that umbrella yeah. under that sh that shadow of this Portuguese melancholy of living <laughs> in the past and not believing in ourselves and we are there and we are crying inside you know and that the environment is dark and the lady is singing with her eyes closed and gradually she starts opening her eyes and gradually she starts interacting with the people and gradually she starts singing a little bit more cheerful. And after two hours, the sadness had disappeared and everyone was drunk, standing up and singing with her. So you know what happened? A transformational experience. And I think that is the beauty of art. Art is real when it can transform you. And you, you mentioned that you have that magic, and I've been there. I've had a few moments where I just thought, oh, I'm so sappy, I'm so romantic, I just can't believe the feelings I'm having. Mm -hmm. I buy the CD, I take it home, it's nothing. It's not there. Absolutely nothing. Nothing it, can replace, nothing can replace experience. There. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're hearing how Portuguese Fado music opens the window to the emotions of Saudade with our guests, Rafael Pereira and Cristina Duarte. Cristina. Can you tell me your favorite Fado moment? 
a little bit like uh, Raphael was saying, your favorite Fado moment is when everybody is in the same tune, when everybody's singing, because we are sharing that moment. It's very different uh, when you go to a Fado restaurant and everybody is in silence, uh -huh. but after a while everybody is like sharing the same feelings. Yeah. So it's everybody's singing with a singer, mm. and uh, everybody recognizes that songs. As a tour guide, it must be frustrating for you because 90% of the tourists, they don't know the words, they oh, sit in a theater and they, they watch it, yeah. and it's nice. But I've been in that situation where everybody around me is singing, and I'm the only one that you doesn't know. You know, there is, there is always, as some of the Fado singers say, there is always the international la-la-la, la-la-la. La-la-la, and that's ex that's that it. works it's for the tourists. It's just what you need. Do you have a, a, a favorite song? I have favorite songs, but uh, one of the songs that most of the people will recognize is the most famous one and talks about the Portuguese house. So it goes more or less like this. Numa casa portuguesa fica bem, pão e vinho sobre a mesa. E se a porta humildemente bate alguém, senta-se à mesa com a gente. Fica bem esta franqueza, fica bem, e o povo nunca desmente. A alegria da pobreza está nesta grande riqueza de dar e ficar contente. Quatro paredes caiadas, um cheirinho alecrim, um cacho de uvas doiradas, duas rosas num jardim, um São José de azulejo. Mais o sol da primavera, uma promessa de beijos, dois braços à minha espera. Tum, 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 tum. Uma casa portuguesa, com certeza, é com certeza uma casa portuguesa. Oh, <laughs> I, I was caught up in it. And I, I have no idea what the words were. J it's, very, very briefly, what was the, the it's story? A describe, it's a, the narrative of a Portuguese house uh -huh. saying, so exactly the flowers, the curtains, the sun through the curtains coming oh. through the window. And when you arrive at home, you have a bowl of soup and, of course, well, two open arms to grab you and the promise of a kiss. Oh, two open arms to <laughs> to I hold you, it. and that's why I was saying it like that's that. That's beautiful. <laughs> that is beautiful. And what instruments would be uh, accompanying you normally? Two guitars, mostly. Two guitars, yeah, two yeah. guitars. It's true, mm. uh, Fado, we tend to think that Fado is something from the past. Mm -hmm. It is not. I believe that it's true that uh, after Amalia Rodriguez there was a gap, mm -hmm. but right now we are living, I think, one of the best moments for the new generations. Okay. They are incredible new voices. The amazing thing is that not only the new voices, mm -hmm. is new audience. Mm. They are getting younger and younger. It's not only the old people that go, but right now young Portuguese people that like and they are interested in Fado. Two guitars, I mean, the classical one. Two guitars, mostly yes. a woman's voice, and some uh, yes. in Coimbra, a man's a man, voice. A man's voice. Now, I've had unforgettable, lifelong memories with mm -hmm. Fado late at night in Evora, mm -hmm. in Coimbra, and in Lisbon. Yes. And I tell you, if you are looking for this experience in Portugal, you can find it. Yes, yes, you This do. is fantastic. Thank you so much, Cristina Duarte, Rafael Pereira. We've learned a lot about Portuguese culture. Thank you. Saudade. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Bem querido ao o fado. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. 
Thanks this week to the Radio Foundation in New York. You'll find more at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.